You are listening to CEO Perspectives, a podcast by the Conference Board. Welcome to this episode of CEO Perspectives, a signature series by the Conference Board. CEO Perspectives are conversations that take an objective, nonpartisan look at a range of subjects that matter most to business leaders. To help make sense of these topics, we sit down with thought leaders and do what we do best at the Conference Board, provide trusted insights for what's ahead. I'm Erin McLaughlin, Senior Economist at the Conference Board, filling in for Steve Odland. Within the last week, two banks were shuttered after an insolvency scare at Silicon Valley Bank, which prompted a run by depositors. In today's conversation, we're going to explore what went down and what it means for CEOs. Joining me today is Dana Peterson, Chief Economist here at the Conference Board. Hi, Dana. Hi, Erin. How are you? Good. How are you doing? Great. Excellent. So it's been a very interesting past week. Let's get started with a recap. So by now, everyone likely knows what happened with SVP. But for those who don't, let's talk about what went down. Recap for us what's happened in the last few days. Sure, absolutely. Well, last week or during the week of March 3rd, uh, Silicon Valley Bank, which we'll call SVP, experienced a massive bank run. That's where depositors withdraw their deposits. They pull out their money at a scale that really overwhelmed the bank. Um, because the bank lacked a, a sufficient amount of cash to meet that demand, it was basically seized by regulators on Friday, March right. 10th. And and so, um, you know, usually banks in the U.S. are pretty well capitalized, but we think SVP's woes were really centered around a lack of liquidity, right? So that means that they just did not have enough assets, uh, or at least, or really enough cash with which to provide their uh, depositors with who rapidly became concerned about what was going on. Uh, but I would say that that, you know, that was one big issue, but there were some other issues also. Okay, and can you describe those other issues with regards to SVB? Sure, absolutely. So essentially there were three big issues. The first is that uh, addressing uh, the first aspect of liquidity is that they basically had a mismatch in the types of deposits that they were taking in versus the uh, assets that they had on hand to back up those deposits. So what do I mean? So they were taking in you know, money from institutions. And the interesting thing about SVP is that it's not really, it wasn't really comprised of, of depositors who were small companies or you know, most Americans. Like retail consumer retail banking, Retail consumer right. banking, exactly. Um, these were corporations. Right. Many of them were venture capital-backed corporations, and also very wealthy individuals. Right. Right. So um, the thing is that SVP was taking in deposits over short periods of time, but then they were backing up these deposits with longer-dated assets like U.S. Treasuries. Now, there's nothing wrong with the U.S. Treasury, but the thing is that um, when interest rates rise the value of that asset falls. And we know interest rates have been rising very rapidly. Um, if you have a really long-term asset, like a 10-year like a treasury bond, it can take some time to sell that, right? And then if the client comes back really early wanting that money, you may not be able to sell that asset in time. And then the thing is that if those assets are sold all at once, very rapidly, which is called a fire sale, 
you're not going to get, you know, 100 cents on the dollar. The investment return that was expected originally. (laughs) Exactly. Because it's like, so imagine if, you know, I came to you, Aaron, and said, Aaron, I'd like to send you, I'd like to sell a whole bunch of chairs to you, right? I want to sell you 200 chairs. And you'd say, well, for one chair, I may pay you $50 each, but for 100, 200, I want a discount on that. I only want to pay you 40 bucks, right? And so that's essentially what happens when you have a fire sale. So all these things were happening in terms of uh, SVP not having the right, we call them tenor or even duration or tenures. Uh, Well, duration on the tenures uh, of the assets uh, relative to the deposits. To the liabilities. Right, to the liabilities. So that was the first issue. Now, the, the second issue is that you banks have something called a deposit base so that's all the money all the deposits are in a big giant pool right from Mm -hmm. all of your all of your clients now the thing is that if your clients are not doing well which the tech industry isn't doing very well right now they're the industry having the most layoffs right now they're the industry because they're young companies that may not have the access to capital right now that they did you know before interest rates started going up yeah, so they yeah. are drawing down, right. drawing on down their, their, deposits. their deposits. Yeah. And so if everyone, if all of your customers are highly concentrated in an industry that is flagging, then you're going to have significant drawdowns on your deposits, right? And so that's that's the second thing. And then the third thing is that the way banks make money is that they take in deposits and they pay lower interest on those deposits. Right than they would on a loan, mm-hmm. right? So how does that work? Um, so Aaron, you're a bank, <laughs> I'm a depositor. So I give you some money, you put it into my supercharged savings account and you give me you know, 25 basis points or a quarter percentage on it. But then I come back to you and I say, hey, I wanna expand my business, I need a loan from you. You're not gonna charge me 25 cents, you're gonna charge uh, 25 basis point right. you charge me 50 right. right I need to make a profit exactly <laughs> but when interest rates rise I'm gonna come back to you and say hey Aaron I've been a really great customer and I want higher interest on the deposits that that I'm keeping at your bank right and by the way the feds raise interest rates by you know four and a half point right. percentage points I want some of that. Right. And so if I'm a really big investor, I've got billions of dollars with millions of dollars with you or even billions, you're probably going to cave into my demands because you know I can walk away. So that was also happening. Right. And so the cost of having these deposits increased because the interest rates were rising. So all three of these things together really severely um, addressed or I'm sorry, limited the amount of liquidity that SVB had and other banks um, were potentially facing the same issue. Are potentially facing the same issue. And I was reading that, you know, this is the first bank run in sort of the Twitter age. You know, (laughs) we think about smartphones and the first smartphone came out in 2007 and it wasn't really, you know, as widespread, but now that everybody can, you know, bank on their phone and information spreads so quickly, especially I suppose if you're in Silicon Valley, that this is a unique, or yes. was a, potentially the first of a unique set of circumstances. In fact, they're calling it the digital bank run. The digital bank run. Because usually a bank run means literally you have to physically you, you're go You're physically the bank, running to the bank. Line right. up outside, but this was all digital. Um, but 
you're probably wondering what happened in terms of arresting the crisis or at least trying to calm things yes. down. Right. So um, basically, we had a massive response from the U.S. administration. So that included the White House, the U.S. Treasury, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, and then also the Federal Reserve Board, which is not a part of the administration. It's a quasi-government um, mm-hmm. entity. And the first thing they did was say to America and the world that, look, the U.S. banking sector is safe. Um, and the way we're going to backstop those right. statements is through a number of measures. So the first thing they did was give Silicon Valley Bank and also a second bank, Signature Bank, something called a systemically, uh, well, essentially labeling them a systemically important institution. So by doing that, that means that the government can take emergency actions on their behalf. And usually only the very largest banks get the benefit get that designation. That. So we know FDIC insured means, you know, as an in- individual consumer retail banker, banking customer, you are insured up to $250,000 for clients, especially corporate com- companies, that is a very small amount. So Indeed. by, you know, putting these measures in place, it gives confidence to those that are banking at these two banks, you know, that have collapsed within yes. the last five days or so, that they can continue to make payroll and they can continue to have the inflow of cash and be able to regulate their cash like they need well, to. Well, the only reason why they're going to be able to do that is because, as you said, typically any account held, well, the sum total of, of accounts held at any one institution are insured by the FDIC mm-hmm. up to $250,000. Right. But many of these entities at Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank, again, were these these corporations and also high net worth individuals. And so they had a lot of uninsured assets. So what was done was the government said, look, through this action of calling them systemically important institutions, financial institutions or, or uh, SIFIs, is that we will guarantee or we will make available all assets even the uninsured assets just for those two entities just for those two entities yes and then another thing that was done because there was concern that this could be contagious uh, is that the federal reserve board which is the central bank of the u.s established a new liquidity facility and that facility is called the bank term funding program right or the btfp Uh, and essentially what this allows is for any financial institution in the U.S. to go to the Federal Reserve Board with high-quality assets, things like treasure, U.S. Treasuries, agency debt, or so mortgage-backed debt. You know, sort of assets that would take many years, up to ten years, to mature. Now the banks have another vehicle to access their capital for short-term needs. Right. And the, the key thing is that they could, if you're a bank, you can go and sell that on the open market, mm-hmm. but you're not going to get 100 cents on the dollar. Mm-hmm. With this facility, you can go to the Federal Reserve Board and swap it and okay. say, Fed, please hold these assets and give us the, the cash value up to, you know, up to 100% of the cash value, okay. right? Which they would not necessarily get if they sold it on the open market, especially right now because treasuries, you know, the treasury market is being challenged. Right. And some of these assets certainly may have lost some value. And so using this collateral, they can essentially take out a loan for a year 
and okay. do the swap type facility. Um, now, many people may say, well, this sounds like a bailout. Right. But it's the Treasury saying, okay, it's not a bailout for a, a few reasons. Number one, this is placing the onus not on the taxpayer, but on the banks. On the banks. That go to this facility and borrow, right? So they're on the hook. And essentially their depositors or their investors are on the hook. Also, with SVP and Signature Bank, their equity holders, meaning those who own who hold their stocks and also their creditors, which are essentially those who have uh, who bought their purchased their bonds, mm-hmm. will basically get wiped out, right? So the government is not guaranteeing that they will get that everybody. Everybody's not necessarily going to be a winner. There are you know there may be some losers depending ex- on the situation. Exactly. Right. Um, and then another thing is that the Treasury is going to backstop, so provide further support to the the Fed's bank term funding program with roughly $25 billion, and that's coming from the Treasury's Exchange Stabilization Fund. Um, the, okay. the one issue, though, the one pushback is, well, maybe this isn't completely letting the taxpayer off the hook, because if any of these uh, banks that go to this window mm-hmm. and borrow don't make good on their loans after a year, the central bank can suffer some losses. But okay. you know, historically with these kind of liquidity and in credit facilities, the central bank has actually made uh, profits off of them, off of it. So there's still that there's still the upside risk. But again, in general, it's not being called a, a bailout because the investors are not being made whole by this. Okay. So if I was a CEO or an executive at a company that was not a bank or not directly involved in the financial sector, what are some of the most important things that I need to know now? Well, I think if you're not a bank, there are a few things you definitely need to do to protect your assets and your your clients from harm. So first of all, you need to review the flexibility of your operating accounts within your banking institution. What's an operating account? It's essentially a pool of money that you use to run the business on a daily right. basis, right? And so that means making payroll, paying your suppliers, um, whatever it takes, paying the rent on the buildings that you own. That's your operating account right. and making sure that account is okay with your banking institution. And we heard over the weekend, you know, as I remember happening a lot during um, the financial crisis, you know, 15 years ago. The FDIC's actions seem to always take place on Friday, or often take place on Fridays. And so over the weekend, there was speculation that uh, companies that had their assets in SVP may not be able to access their capital in order to make payroll and do some of just right. the operating uh, aspects of running a business. So, yes, but that that issue, that risk has been resolved. Has been resolved. Because they have full access yes. as of this past Monday, the, the 13th. Other things non-bank institutions should look at is raising liquidity, making sure you have enough cash on hand in-house, and also making sure that your vendors and your suppliers have cash. Right. Right, because you may have cash, but then they may not. And so right. that gums up the works and causes uh, you know, essentially supply chain disruptions. Also, if you lack cash, that you're able to draw down on something called revolvers, which is essentially a short-term credit facility at a bank, kind of like 
like a checking account. Okay. Right. Or savings account that's very liquid, um, but that you can access if you need money to backstop your working capital needs. And then finally, and probably most importantly, non-banks or, or corp regular corporations should assure their stakeholders that their own internal asset liability risk mechanisms are sound. Okay. Because again, a big issue with this is, well, two big issues. One is that medium-sized financial institutions like SVB were not subject to the same degree of stress testing by regulators as the, the as biggest larger banks, banks, as the larger banks. And so, but that doesn't mean that, that they didn't have, that they had perfect uh, risk management internally. And so there were some issues with risk management, number one being if you're going to accept deposits, that you should have assets that are highly liquid and not have a set of illiquid assets yes. that take that are very difficult to um, convert into cash. And so that was a huge issue. But these are the things that we think corporations, non-financial corporations, these are the steps that they should take to ensure that they don't lose customers and that they stay, their doors stay open. Okay, well that is most important. Well, we've recapped what has happened in the banking industry over the last few days and why, as well as what it means for CEOs. After the break, we'll dive into what we can expect going forward. As you and your company monitor the volatile and uncertain economy, the award-winning forecast team at the Conference Board predicts a downturn by the end of 2022. Recession will further compound the crises that have recently upended expectations, from a deadly pandemic to a war in Ukraine and the highest inflation in decades. Yet, unprecedented crises also present unforeseen opportunities if you have a trusted, proven navigator by your side. With that in mind, and as the Conference Board has always done, we are providing you with daily, timely, and relevant content that will guide the business community through the economic storm. These trusted insights are being gathered on our website and are available to help your company master the challenges. To find out how you can chart a course for the future which will allow your business to emerge stronger on the other side, visit our free economic hub entitled Navigating the Economic Storm, your indispensable guide through the global recession, located at conference-board.org slash topics slash recession. Welcome back to CEO Perspectives. I'm your host, Erin McLaughlin, and I'm joined by Dana Peterson, Chief Economist at the Conference Board. Dana, we've been talking about what has happened over the last few days with SVB and the banking issues that we've seen. To what extent are there risks of contagion? Sure, I think the, the risks of contagion, the most extreme risks have been reduced with the actions that right. federal regulators in the US uh, completed, but there's still risk of contagion. And, and just to give you a sense of what's happened in the last few days, First Republic Bank, also a small, uh, well, medium-sized institution, but still serving very high net worth right. clients. And they're headquartered in San Francisco, from yes. what I understand. And the yes. key thing is that their clients are also very high net worth. They came under pressure, and so they fortunately received funding from the Fed and also from J.P. Morgan. So together, uh, well, initially they, they received $70 billion of unused liquidity to tap. And that's on top of them being able to go to the bank term funding program that the Fed has. 
Uh, meanwhile, the UK arm of SVB was acquired by HSBC, a lot of letters here, for a dollar. Right. <laughs> for one dollar or one pound, essentially. So that's great. But the parent company of SVB, which is located in the U.S., has struggled to find a buyer. Yes. Um, essentially, the auction failed over the weekend, and potentially that it's going to it could go through bankruptcy, and mm-hmm. through bankruptcy, essentially, you'll have a sale of the non, of the assets, and indeed, the creditors, those who have bonds, are forming or have formed a group that they're hoping that if there is a, a sale of the the of the assets of this of SVB, that some of the non-banking assets, um, if they fetch you know a decent price, that they can get some of they can receive some of the proceeds from those sales. Okay, um, but also financial markets have been selling off, and on fears of contagion. Mm-hmm. So, some of the contagion risks include runs on perfectly healthy banks, right, and and runs by not only corporations but by your average consumer, your retail bank, uh, your right. retail banker, right? Mom and pop right. essentially making runs. And that's, that's, that is certainly uh, not what we want to do. And so that's a big reason why the government came out and said, look, the banking system is fine. Don't worry. Your money's okay. Most, most individuals don't have, don't two, have more than $250,000 yes. yes. in any bank, right? Um, but also other things that could happen is, that regulators are probably going to take a closer look at not only the largest banks, but those small and medium-sized regional banks. banks to, to see if they have that sort of tenor mismatch that you were describing between their long-term assets and yes. their short-term As well as any other deficiencies. And certainly a few years ago, there was some repeal of the restrictions of Dodd-Frank mm-hmm. in terms of stress testing. Uh, especially on those small and medium-sized banks. Many people thought it was overreach, and may, some aspects may have been, but it also may have also encouraged you know, lax protocols internally right. that kind of led to this this sort of thing. Um, so there are definitely going to be triggers. Uh, banks are going to be looking at other banks because banks have other banks as clients. Right, they're inter, interconnected. Yes, and banks are going to be looking at their corporate uh, and individual depositors, mm-hmm. making sure that um, that they're sound. And certainly you can have seizing up of individual asset markets. We're mm-hmm. kind of seeing that right now where the stock market has fallen by over 500 points, maybe even more over the last Today, few days. Uh, Wednesday as we're recording, <laughs> yes. Exactly. Particularly bank stocks, as yes. you described. Right. And, and bond yields are mm-hmm. collapsing. What does that mean? When the bond yield collapses, it means because the price has gone up. Why is the price going up? Because there's extreme demand right. for safe assets. And so whenever there's a run to safety, a flight to safety, as they call that, it makes that asset very illiquid. Because everyone's buying up, that means there's not a lot right. out there left floating around the market. And so there's also con- risk of contagion into the rest of the world. Certainly, uh, the issue with SVP's branch in the UK has been taken care of. But there are other banks, uh, not only in the U.S. but abroad, that have right. replicated SVB's profile, model of how, their model, right. and also their clientele. Mm-hmm. Um, and so those could come under pressure. And then, find, and then two more things in terms of of contagion 
is the fear that this could spill over into the crypto asset market. So you have stablecoin markets that claim to have assets backed by things like treasuries and cash, U.S. dollars, that are being held at SVB. Right. Yeah, I really appreciated your use of the word opaque in describing these kinds of assets in the piece that the conference board published uh, on Sunday. And it seems to me that when you observe what's happened and you're sort of analyzing it against long-term, more traditional assets that folks are used to, it must be increasingly difficult for regulators and for others to see you know, the asset versus liability, you know, conundrum when you factor in, you know, large amounts of crypto assets, which I believe Signature Bank, the second bank, had yes. in its portfolio. Yes. And the thing is that there's still not much regulation around the crypto space. Right. And indeed, it's not clear what will happen to the underlying assets if the tethered asset, so stable coins are quote unquote tethered or attached to mm -hmm. these traditional assets. So if if the stable coin trades lower than its peg and the peg is usually one $1, <laughs> if it's trading at like 80 or 90 or 70, 60 cents, what does that mean for, does it filter back through the value of the, of the US dollar? Does it filter back to the value of these other uh, quote unquote safe assets? And then finally, broader contagion to financial markets and, and then right. onto the real economy. So right now we are seeing financial markets respond. So when you look at different measures like the VIX, the VIX is a measure of volatility in the stock mm -hmm. market. Even though the stock market has lost quite a bit of value over a short period of time, the volatility as measured by the VIX is still pretty low. But when we look at MOVE, which is another measure of volatility, but of the bond market, that has shot that up. That has, okay. Yes. And so that means all in all financial conditions are tightening beyond what the Fed would probably appreciate right. right now. And certainly if you have financial markets seizing up, being illiquid, and malfunctioning, that's that's certainly not good for the mechanism that the Fed is using to to control what's happening in the economy. Okay. So and just practically speaking, if you have a bunch of regular folks running to their banks or going to their cell phones right. and withdrawing money, then that's a bad thing. One thing that we have seen is that traditional and larger banks are seeing massive amounts of inflows because people yeah, are moving their money. Yeah, I was going to ask money. about that. You <laughs> yes. know, some of the advice that we've seen, you know, given or written about in the last couple of days is for companies and individuals, if you're fortunate enough to be an individual with over $250,000 to diversify the banks that they deal with. So that, Absolutely. you know, even if there is always a backstop, so you're not caught, you know, in a operational little snag and you're able to work. So, you know, the idea of having two banking relationships or we're multiple. seeing that or multiple <laughs> banking relationships or banking relationships with a large bank that, you know, may or may not be able to cover itself a little bit more so than a regional bank seems to exactly. be, you know, being discussed in, in the financial world right now. Exactly. And that 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 probably works for most. But the issue is that there's a fear that this is going to stifle investment right. in the tech sector. Why? Because tech firms, especially startups, have very special needs. And yes. so they need 
lending products that are sometimes very complex. They need revenue before they get sales revenue. Exactly. And so they they need the trust of the entity that's lending to them. And they also need products that are not vanilla, so to speak. They may be very complex. Mm -hmm. And if you go to some of the larger banks, they're not really allowed to. They're not to. tailored for that. And in this environment, maybe their tolerance for risk or for you know offering an unusual product right. may not be Or it be may not there. even be legal right. for them to offer right. something that's really bundled or, or highly structured. So there, all of these things are, are, are concerns that, and, and certainly when it comes to the real economy, concerns that if the financial markets don't calm down and this shows up on the six o'clock news every evening, and then that regular Americans start to panic. Economy, yes, you know, it's a a lot of it is behavioral and is right. a mindset, and so we know that the underlying reason for a lot of this was the Fed rising their rate, interest rates rising to control consumer behavior, and now we have this that might also impact. Well, I mean, the key thing is. Um, the Fed is trying to, so if you think about jumping out of a plane, right, skydiving. Skydiving isn't a fall. It's not falling, it's a controlled descent. Okay. And the Fed is trying to execute a controlled descent regarding the economy. They do not want a free fall. Right, this was not part of the plan. This is not part of the plan, (laughs) and certainly if average Americans start freaking out, which is a non-technical term, then you'll have that free fall the Fed doesn't want. So as a member of your team, I know the most popular question that you seem to get asked all the time is, when are we going to be in a recession and what is going to happen with interest rates? And, you know, as as we're sort of talking about how the Fed has been trying to control the fall and that this banking... I hate to call it a crisis, but issue that has come up in the last few days is impacting, you know, obviously at the conference board, we have been projecting a recession to occur this year, a mild recession. How does all of the activity within the last few days perhaps change that? Well, I think I think there are two things to look at. There's what's going to happen right now, meaning what's the Fed going to do next week? Mm-hmm. What is the Fed going to do over the longer term, meaning the next, well, over the medium run, the next couple of years? And then also, what does all this mean in terms of the special actions or emergency actions that were give, that were conducted, right? So let me first start with the last the second question, and then okay. I'll answer the first question, which okay. we'll get at your question. So regulators, this, this is not over. Regulators essentially need to be very transparent about what these new policy decisions mean, right? So, okay, we did it for these two banks that are were arguably systemically important given the amount of assets they right. had and the type of customers they had. Um, will this encourage loose financial activities or risk management at other firms knowing that, well, they might also be designated as a SIFI and someone will come to their rescue, right? So that's the, the, the concern and making sure that there's an explanation of what kind of, what, what, how, how does all this work? Is this risky and what are the externalities that can develop 
from the de decisions? And then how long are you going yeah. to allow this decision to be in place? To be in place. Right. So essentially, regulators are taking the activities that they are to make sure that there is confidence in the banking system. But, you know, I've heard the term moral hazard used, you know, this week. And that's because, you know, they don't want to encourage, they have to have the transparency that you're describing in order to make sure that, you know, other, that, that bankers are not taking undue risks, basically, exactly. creating a situation of no consequences. Right. So that's the concern. And then getting back to the economy in the short run, meaning the next meeting, next Fed yes. meeting. <laughs> Which um, is next week. Yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> if you're listening to this podcast right now, this current crisis notwithstanding, elevated inflation is still a problem. Right. That has not gone away. We received uh, reports on inflation and consumer spending. So inflation is, is continuing to slow, but very slowly. Very slow. It's very sticky. Right. And meanwhile, consumer spending is not slowing fast enough. <laughs> so <laughs> plus you have massive labor shortages that are contributing to increases in wages. And right. when we ask CEOs in our CEO confidence measure for the US, what are you doing about rising input costs, including wages? Right. They say the first thing they're going to do is pass it on to the customer. That shows up in consumer price mm -hmm. inflation, which shows up in the gauges that the Fed is watching. So the Fed is still going to need to bring down inflation. So the question is, OK, if we have, if this, this little mini crisis remains contained, then the Fed is free to go ahead and raise interest rates, probably, you know, 25 basis points, okay. and maybe do so for several more meetings, two to three right. more times, topping out the Fed funds rate uh, in the target range of five and a quarter to five and a half percent, okay. let's say. If dynamics over the next week, because we're exactly one week out from the next Fed meeting, don't calm down, if there are other if shoes that if drop. If there's volatility that is just still yes, happening. Yes, that's, that's foaming and yeah. isn't dying down. Right. And you start having contagion and you start having real panic, especially amongst actors in the real economy, meaning non-financial firms and consumers, then the Fed may say, OK, we're, we're just going to pause. But if they do pause, they need to send a very strong signal that we're still focused on tackling inflation because inflation is the bigger problem for yes. the broader parts of the US economy. Right. Right. The financial system is absolutely important. Right. Right. Most people don't think about the fact that when they stick their ATM card into the machine, that money comes out. Right. They expect the money to come out, but right. there's an entire industry that facilitates that. Yes. But there's also the rest of the economy. And the economy is mainly driven by consumer spending. And so if consumers, if their incomes are whittled away by high inflation and whatever incomes they receive after tax is eroded by expenses for food, energy, and housing, right. that's not going to produce a dynamic economy. Right. And you, the Fed may have to be uh, have monetary policy be tighter for longer which can cause even deeper deeper and longer recession. recession. So right now, it's, it's very tenuous that the Fed's going to have to thread that needle. But whether it pauses next week or not, 
the Fed still has work to do. It's still the, the mission is still the same, and inflation is still yes. running too hot. Exactly, yes. and the Fed wants to not only bring down the actual level of inflation back to its two percent target, but to make sure that expectations, or it's called inflation expectations, remain anchored. Meaning, people don't believe people will not start to believe that prices will continually be rising be rapidly rising. and things will be out of reach because that can destroy an economy. Right. Well, this has been very interesting and it's such a dynamic time. I really want to thank you, Dana, for explaining this all to us today. And thanks to all of you for listening into CEO Perspectives. Every week we'll be joined by a prominent thought leader to provide insights on the issues of our time. We'll cover the leading topics in economics, public policy, ESG, human capital, and more. Please share CEO perspectives with your colleagues. I'm Erin McLaughlin, and this podcast has been brought to you by the Conference Board. You have been listening to CEO Perspectives, a podcast by the Conference Board.